Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter. I want to speak to you today about the first Christmas tree. Uh, The first Christmas tree, Matthew's Gospel chapter number 1. And um, we're going to be looking at, when I call it the first Christmas tree, it is the genealogical record of the birth of our Savior. It is His family tree. You know, among the most popular Christmas gifts in recent years have been these DNA test kits. One man said, the most popular gift you can give at Christmas time is your spit, uh, because they spit in a little vial and then you mail that off. There's things like 23andMe or uh, Ancestry DNA, and you can send those uh, Ancestry test kits off, and it will reveal a number of things about you. For example, it may tell you if there are any kind of genetic conditions that run in your family that, that could be uh, potentially harmful, or if you are at risk for any kind of particular uh, disease that might run in your family. Some of the benefits over the years is that there have actually been uh, tools that law enforcement have used to help uh, track down criminals that beforehand they were unable to find. Uh, they can also help trace your family roots back many, many generations. Whether you use the DNA test kits or whether you do it the old-fashioned way with the legwork, it is said that the average person can only trace their family genealogy back about four, maybe 500 years at best. So not very far back when you, when you really think about it. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the, uh, the largest family tree in the world is the Chinese philosopher Confucius. His family tree spans more than 86 generations, 2,500 years, and includes more than 2 million members. But you know, actually, according to the Scripture, there is a family tree that is much older than that, much larger than that, much broader than that, and it can be traced all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Scriptures. And every single one of us are descendants from Adam and Eve. Over a period of time of human history of about 6,000 years, we're all ancestors. We all have the same uh, original parents, Adam and Eve, and... uh, Uh, Everyone who is born on this planet in that regard are related in some way. Well, Matthew chapter number 1 gives us the ancestry of Jesus. In fact, it is one of what we may say would be two, maybe three genealogical accounts of Christ. What I mean by that, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. If you look at Luke's um, gospel, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. But if you go to the Gospel of John, John traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to God and says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What I want to do is I want us to look at this first Christmas tree, this family tree of Jesus, and look at some of the characteristics that are included in this family tree. Now, Matthew doesn't give us every single patriarch and matriarch that is mentioned. But here's how Matthew frames the genealogy of Christ. He frames it with three different sections or three different segments of Jewish history. Let me show you what I'm talking about in verse number 17. Matthew writes these words, All the generations from Abraham to David are are 14 generations. So that's one section. We would call that the theocracy of the Jewish people. From, the, from David until the carrying away into Babylon is 14 generations. That's a segment of time we would call the monarchy. 
And then you continue reading from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. That is called the hierarchy. So as you begin to unpack this genealogy of Jesus, the first thing I want you to note is that the genealogy of Jesus was not like any ordinary man. It was a supernatural genealogy. Now again, it is compartmentalized here by Matthew as, as three separate sections of Jewish history. Uh, from Abraham to David, again, that's the theocracy. Uh, it is when God said, I'll be your God, you will be my people. And God miraculously led the Hebrews out of Egyptian bondage. He led them across the Sinai Desert. He brought them into the Promised Land, and he gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the theocratic time for the Jewish people, where they looked to God as their leader. Of course, as you know, over time, the Jewish people decided they wanted a king. And that time would usher in what's known as the monarchy, beginning really with the first king that God chose, not King Saul now, but King David. That started a time in the history of the Jewish people known as the monarchy or the time of the kings. Some 42 different kings. Some of them were good, but most of them were bad, and many, many of them were extremely, extremely wicked. But the dynasty would last about 500 years. But because of the continual rebellion against God, the downward spiral of the Jewish people became more pronounced. They would um, disobey God, judgment would come, Another king would come to the throne, and it seemed, seemed like things would get worse and worse and worse throughout this particular section called the monarchy. Eventually, it would culminate with King Solomon. Upon his death, the kingdom would split. There would be a civil war. And then eventually, after Solomon's death, the Bible says that the Babylonian Empire, by, led by Nebuchadnezzar, would come in and just devastate the southern kingdoms of Judah. It had already happened in the northern kingdoms with the Assyrian Empire. So really what had happened is the Jewish people were brought back into Babylonian captivity where they would spend 70 decades, uh, in, um, or 70 years, seven decades uh, in Babylonian captivity. Now all of us were astounded when we saw the news footage on October the 7th and how Hamas fighters had... had um, planted explosives along the wall that would separate Gaza and Israel, blew holes in those walls and would drive pickup trucks loaded with machine guns and Hamas fighters into the southern villages of Israel and just slaughter many of the Jewish people. Over 1,400 innocent Jewish people were killed. Some 200, more than 200, were taken off into captivity. And as of today, here we are about three months later, and there's still over a hundred hostages held captive in Gaza. I trust that you join me in praying for those uh, that God would see fit to allow them to be released very, very soon and very quickly. As devastating as that was, that was nothing when compared to the, to the invasion by the Babylonian army in 586 uh, B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came in and he just destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Um, as many as 10,000 Jewish people, some of the best and the brightest, the most educated, the most prosperous, the most influential Jewish people, were snatched out of their homeland and forced to live in, uh, in Babylon. And then it eventually gave way to the Medes and the Persians. But my point is, that was the time known as the conclusion of the monarchy and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity that Matthew writes about. That final 14-generation segment 
is the hierarchy. And during that time, the Jewish people came back from Babylon. They began to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They reinstituted the sacrificial system. And they began to be the people that God wanted them to be. Uh, and for the next 500 years, listen, they waited for Messiah to come. That's why Matthew writes, from the time of Babylon until Christ was 14 generations. During that 500-year period, they waited and waited for Messiah to come. They were praying for liberation and for freedom because here's what happened. After they came back into their homeland, it was not too many um, um, generations had passed until the Grecian Empire came to power. They defeated the Medes and the Persians under Alexander the Great, and the Greeks ruled the world. Following the Greeks was the Roman Empire. And the Roman was, Empire was, uh, was in effect when Jesus was born. And the Roman Empire was really in effect for about 70 years before Jesus was born. It was one of the most uh, powerful, prosperous, incredible empires the world had ever seen. In fact, I'll put a picture of it up on the screen for you. And what you'll see there in the blue, in the center of the circle, is the Mediterranean Sea. And you will note all of the, all of the uh, orange color around the Mediterranean Sea. That was the first century Roman Empire. You can see the country of Italy, and on the coast of Italy is Rome. That was their, their capital until later it was moved to Constantinople. But uh, nonetheless, this was the Roman Empire when Jesus uh, was born. And it was the most massive empire. They controlled the trade routes. They controlled the seaports. They controlled the militaries. The Roman Empire was really second to none in the days that Jesus would come on the scene. And for years and years after Malachi had put down his pen, finishing up the, as the last prophet in the Old Testament, until the New Testament dawns, the Jewish people had been longing for the, the Roman Empire to, to free the Jewish people. And that's why they were praying for a Messiah to come that could rid the Holy Land, that could rid the Promised Land of the Jewish influence. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that uh, Caesar Augustus would come on the scene and he would demand a, a, a census to be taken for all of the people. But before I share that with you, I want you to go back to verse number one and notice Notice verse 1. The Bible says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, as the Jewish people began to pray for Messiah to come, there were certain characteristics that this Messiah had to have, certain uh, boxes that had to be checked, if you will. For example, uh, this Messiah would have to be somebody from the line of David because the Old Testament said that that's the way it would be. Uh, this Messiah would have to be somebody from the lineage of the tribe of Judah because the Bible said that in the Old Testament he would be from Judah. Uh, they also required that uh, this man would be from the city of Bethlehem because the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem and all eyes were on Bethlehem. All eyes were on the lineage of David, the family tree of Judah, looking and looking and waiting and waiting for all of these years for Messiah to come on the scene. Well, the time was ripe for Messiah's arrival. So verse number one tells us, that what we're going to read is the generations or the genealogies 
of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Genealogies were extremely important to the Jewish people. They were family records that were maintained by the Sanhedrin. And if you wanted to, for example, sell a piece of property, you were not allowed to sell it or to buy a piece of property outside your family tribe. You remember under the leadership of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan land, all the land was divided into tribes. You could buy and sell land within the tribes like Manasseh and Dan and Naphtali and Asher and all of those different tribes, but you couldn't sell it out of your tribe or you couldn't buy it uh, out of another tribe or you couldn't buy it from another tribe. So how did they know who belonged to which tribe? They would go back and look at the records, meticulous genealogical records that the Sanhedrin would keep, and it would let them know which tribe they belonged to. Secondly, they also, um, the, the genealogical records were useful to determine the lineage of the priesthood. For an individual to be a priest, they had to be from the tribe of Levi. How would they know they were from the tribe of Levi? By going to the Sanhedrin, going through those genealogical records, and the records would lead them back to the tribe of Levi that would qualify them to be a priest. Also, uh, the kingship was the same way. They were looking for a king that had to be from the tribe of Judah. Now, how would they know if you were from the tribe of Judah? The same way. You go back to the Sanhedrin, they open up those books of those genealogical records and can trace that ancestry back to, um, to Judah. So then that brings us to the time that Jesus was born when the Roman Empire controlled everything around the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, there were two Hasmonean brothers that got into an argument. They controlled Palestine, and when they got into an argument, they appealed to Rome, and they asked Rome to come in and to help settle their disputes. And when Rome got there, Rome never left. So for centuries, they had been praying that Rome would be pushed out of Palestine. And then, when Jesus was born, shortly thereafter, the very first Roman, Empire, or the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, got a picture of him on the screen for you, Caesar Augustus gave the decree that all of the Roman world would be um, part of a census. And as part of the census, everybody had to return back to their original homeland, their original place of origin. That's why Mary and Joseph would leave their hometown of, of Nazareth and make that 75 or 80 mile journey on the back of a donkey to come into the city of Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's family originated from the city of Bethlehem. And in order to be compliant with Caesar Augustus's decree, they had to leave Nazareth, go back to Bethlehem, even though she was far along now at this time in her pregnancy. So in this genealogical record of Jesus, this family tree, this Christmas tree, if you will, you find men like Abraham, the father of the faithful. You find men like Jacob, who changed his name to Israel. You find men like David, a man who was after God's own heart. You find Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. All of these were, were descendants, or they were, uh, they were patriarchs that Jesus Christ would actually descend from. Well, what you will find as you read through that list of men, and there are some women included, is that every single one of them had feet of clay. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. Jacob, we know, was a deceiver. Solomon was a polygamist. David committed adultery. And every single one of these guys failed 
the Lord and failed him miserably. You would think that Jesus, in the impeccability of his life, in the purity of his character, his sinless nature, that everybody in his family tree would, would be pristine, but that's not the case. In fact, you read about some pretty bad scoundrels in this. And as you read through this, one of the things that you will note is that this genealogy is not just a record like any, uh, anybody else's birth record would be, but this is a supernatural genealogy. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We've, we've looked at this before in other studies, but I want to bring you back to it. You will notice in verse number two and following, there is a long list of the King James uses the word begat. Most contemporary translations will say so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And you have this genealogical record from Abraham all the way down to where Jesus is born. But I want you to notice, if you track that with your eyes and you come to verse number 16, after all of this begatting that was going on, verse 16 says, And Jacob begat Joseph. Now look at this. The husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, what do you immediately notice about that sentence? It breaks the pattern, the fatherly pattern that you see all the way through these opening couple of paragraphs. It does not say that Jacob begat Joseph and Joseph begat Jesus. What does it say? It says, Jacob begat Joseph and Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. There is a big, big difference between those two statements. It does not say that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but that Jesus was the son of Mary, and Joseph would be his earthly father. Joseph was not Jesus' biological dad. That is important because, listen, if Joseph was Jesus' biological father then Jesus would have inherited the same sinful nature that all of these other characters in this family tree would have inherited. He would have been just like a sinner like Abraham, or like David, or like Isaac, or like Jacob, or anybody else. But Jesus' bloodline would, would surpass all of human, the human family and, and go directly to God. And God is the father of the Lord Jesus. And on that first Christmas Eve or Christmas night when the Holy Spirit of God would overshadow the Virgin Mary and on that first Christmas day she would give birth to the Son of God. He was not the son of Joseph biologically, but he was the son of God. That's what I mean by it was a supernatural genealogy. But it is also a genealogy of grace. Notice with me verse number 18. It gives us the details, the narrative of the birth of Jesus as being, notice verse 18, when his mother Mary was engaged or espoused to Joseph, before they came together, before there was any kind of a physical relationship, the Bible says she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. This is the only time in human history this has ever happened and the only time it ever will happen where a woman would conceive without the natural use of the man. Then Joseph, verse number 19, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she'll bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. Now notice this. And he will save his people from their sins. 
The family tree, the first Christmas tree, the genealogical family tree of Jesus is a family tree, a genealogy of grace. It is nothing less than a declaration of the amazing grace of God to this world in many different ways. Let me just point out a couple of those ways to you today. It screams to us the grace of God when we see the names that are included in this record. Primarily four women whose names you will see appear in this record. Now that is very unusual in Jewish lineage. When uh, the genealogical records are given, it is usually through the father and the mothers are not mentioned. But you will find four women that are mentioned here. And every one of these women, listen, were outside, were outside the grace of God, or not the grace of God, but they were outside the family of God. And then they were beautifully and wonderfully welcomed into God's family by His amazing grace. Let me show you these women. You may want to circle their names or underline them so you can go back and look at them later. If you will, look with me in verse number three. And Judah was the father of Phares and Zerah of Tamar. All right? That is the first woman that you find in the genealogical record of Jesus. And I put an uh, artist rendering of Tamar uh, on the screen for you so you can get that visual in your mind. Who in the world was Tamar? You write down Genesis chapter 38. If you were to go back and read Genesis 38, here's what you would find. Tamar was married... To Judah's oldest son. The Bible says that he was a wicked, wicked man. And because of his wickedness, he had an untimely death. He died prematurely. And for Tamar, what she wanted more than anything else was to be a mother. But now her husband has died and she does not have a child. So she concocts this plan where she puts a veil on her face and she dresses like she is a woman of the night. She positions herself in a strategic location during sheep shearing time, and lo and behold, there is her father-in-law, Judah, who comes to do the sheep shearing, and he sees this woman of the night, not knowing that it is his daughter-in-law, and Judah has a relationship with her, and nine months later, Tamar has twins. They're mentioned for us in verse number three, Phares and Zerah. So she has twins, and, uh, and you read that and you think, how in the world could a person as manipulative as Tamar, as scheming, as diabolical to do something like that, how in the world could a woman like that be in the family tree of Jesus? How in the world could a person that was synced to something like that be in the family tree of Jesus. For that matter, how in the world could Judah, he's not innocent in this as well, how could he be included in it? There's really only one answer for that, and that is because of the absolute amazing grace of God who would reach out to those who were outside of his family like Tamar and ultimately bring them into his forever family. You see, Tamar was a reminder that all the way back to the fountainhead of the royal line, Judah, was filled with sinners, filled with those who would need grace like Judah and like Tamar. So that's the first woman. Look at the second one, and that is in verse number five. Her name is Rahab. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Do you see that? Rahab was just like Tamar, 
except Rahab was even worse. Rahab was a woman of ill repute living in the wicked city of Jericho. In fact, I put a picture on there where you'll recall that Rahab hid the spies before the city of Jericho was destroyed, and she had heard about the God of the Jewish people and how God had parted the Red Sea and how God had supernaturally provided for the Jewish people. And the Bible says that Rahab, even though, now listen carefully, she was a, she was a, a prostitute in her days, The Bible says that her heart melted when she heard all that God had done for the Jewish people. And she she hid those spies that came to spy out Canaan land. And she ultimately would place her trust in God. And God would see to it that Rahab would become not just part of his family, but one through which the line of Jesus, the Messiah himself, would come through. So look at these two women. Tamar, how much worse could you get? Rahab, how much worse can you get? But both of those ladies who were outside the family, now by God's amazing grace, would come into the family of God. Actually, you'll remember that Rahab um, marries a man by the name of Salomon. He proposes, she accepts, they have a baby boy, and the Bible says the baby boy's name is Boaz, one of the most famous names in all of the Old Testament because Boaz married a young woman named, what was her name, church? Ruth. You're tracking with me, aren't you? You find that in verse number five as well, which brings us to the third woman, Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of, look at this, Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Gentile woman. She was not Jewish by birth. She didn't have any kind of rightful ownership to uh, the family of God like other Jewish people uh, would have claimed to have. In fact, she belonged to a race of people, the Moabite race, that was under the judgment of God. The Moabites' sordid history began uh, at Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll remember the Bible says because of the wickedness that fire and brimstone would rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when that began to take place, Lot and his family left Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they were fleeing, Lot's wife stopped. And she turned to look back at the destruction of her home and of the place that she used to live. And the Bible says she turned into what? A pillar of salt. In fact, if you go to the southern end of the Dead Sea today, there's an outcropping of a rock formation right there it is, and that is referred to as Lot's wife. Did you know that? Perhaps, I don't know if it is or not, but that's what it's referred to, as if she's frozen in time, as a woman who looked back and a woman who would not give her life totally over to the Lord. So what happens from that is Lot and his daughters survive Sodom and Gomorrah. They hide out in a cave. His daughters get him drunk and have an incestuous relationship with their father, Lot. And from that relationship was birthed the Moabite people group. And God said that people group would be under his judgment. In fact, he says that Moab is my washpot. Now, friends, let me tell you, guess where young Ruth was from? Moab. The worst places you could possibly be from. But she comes into Bethlehem and she, she would find grace as she would get married eventually to the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And I know this is a lot of biblical history, history, but it's a beautiful sight to see how Boaz would bring her into the family of God through this genealogy of grace. And now you have in the lineage of Jesus, Rahab, 
Tamar, this Moabite woman named Ruth. How in the world did they get there? It's all because of the amazing grace of God. Outside of his family, but by his grace, he loved them and welcomed them to his family. And then that leads us to the fourth woman. Her name is not specifically mentioned, but you see her by, by the way that the text reads. If you'll go to verse number 6, Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Who is that, church? Bathsheba. That is correct. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a good faithful soldier of David, a good loyal soldier. But Uriah was betrayed by Bathsheba. Uriah was betrayed by David. They have a child together and the child dies in infancy. David actually has Uriah murdered to cover up the scandal. And it's just a sordid, um, sordid uh, web of, of, of events that take place with David and Bathsheba. How in the world is that possible? That a Bathsheba, a Tamar, a Rahab, a Ruth can be part of the family tree of Jesus. There's only one explanation. And again, is the amazing grace of God. That's why the Bible says when Jesus came, He came to save His people from their sins. They were all sinners. Amen, church? I mean, we just gave you that sordid history. And when Jesus came, He came to save His people from their sins. Now listen, all of Israel's history is colored by sin. But you know what? So is mine. And so is yours. And so is the world. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. But I want you to know that God so loved this world that He would send His Son to come and to die on the cross and save His people, you and I, from our sins. He didn't have to do that. But he did it because he loved us. He did it because he loved us with an eternal love. Now listen, if Jesus was not ashamed of his ancestors, those who came before him, he's not going to be ashamed of those who come after him, you and I, if we're really in his family and let him work in our lives. The Bible says the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to all men. So this is a supernatural genealogy of Christ. It is also a genealogy of grace. And then finally, it is a genealogy that shows us the presence of God with us. Let me show you. If you're listening, say amen. If you'll go to verse number 22, notice, All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet of the Lord by the prophet saying, spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, that is not his name. That is his title. Jesus' birth name was, of course, Jesus. But one of his titles is Emmanuel, God with us. It is God in the flesh. It is the incarnation of Christ. And it is, it is a way of saying that God on Christmas Day left heaven and came into this world wrapped in human skin. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he goes on to write, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
The Bible says in John 1 as well that by Christ everything that was made was made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you see, the Old Testament opens up with how the world was made. The New Testament begins with who made it and what He did in making it. So to say that Christ was born as a baby brings us face to face with the truth of the incarnation. Listen, Jesus was not just part God and part man. And this is so important theologically, but also practically. He was fully God and still fully man. Now certainly he gave up some of his, his um, um, individual attributes when he became a man, but he never ceased being God. He was fully God and fully man. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. Uh, he was welded together as, as the God-man, for lack of a better word. Fully God and fully man. It's a central truth of Christianity that God left heaven, was wrapped in human skin, was held in the arms of the Virgin Mary, was placed in the manger as God's gift to this world. And he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Listen to Micah. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. Too little will be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth who will be the ruler of Israel. And his goings forth are from everlasting to everlasting. Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It's the Carmen Christi, the hymn of Christ. But made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Isaiah said he would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. The everlasting, everlasting Father. Look at those words, God with us, if you will. All this was done, he says, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord, by the prophet. That a virgin would be with child and bring forth a son, call his name Emmanuel, which is God, being interpreted as God with us. The word with, in Greek, it's transliterated, it's uh, meta, meta. And then what the word means? Face to face. That God left heaven to be Emmanuel, to be God face to face with us. That the little baby in the manger was God face to face with the human family. Listen, the Bible says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and by Him were all things created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authority, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. Now listen to this. And by Him, all things are literally held together. So as you approach this Christmas season... Maybe in your life you're going through a burden right now, a, a heavy load, a difficulty that you would say, Pastor Darrell, if you knew what I've been dealing with, um, you, would, uh, you just wouldn't know what to do with yourself. I know that a lot of folk hurt. A lot of folk hurt all the time, but especially around Christmas time. I want you to know that God so loved you that in your hurt, He came to be face to face with you. I want you to know if your job situation is uncertain that God loves you so much that He left the portals of heaven to step down into this world to be born in a cattle stall to be face to face with you. 
Your marriage might be on the rocks. Your children might be breaking your heart. Your bank account might be empty. I want you to know God so loved you. He stepped out of this world to be face to face with you. All of the storms that you face, all of the troubles, all the hardships of life, you'll never have a time if you'll look to him that you won't find that God is with us in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus. Listen, it has been said about Jesus that he began his ministry by being hungry but yet he's the bread of life. He ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, but yet he is the living water. He was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away every tear from our eye. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death he destroyed the power of death. And 1 Corinthians 9 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So as you look at that first Christmas tree, the genealogical account of all of those folk who were in Jesus' family, all of his ancestors, I want you to know that he is still writing folk who will be in his family. He is still recording the names of folk who will be in his family. And the scripture tells us that there is one of these days there's going to be a, a book of life that will be opened up. And perhaps that book of life is the continuation of this family tree of Jesus. And everybody who has named the name of Christ and humbly bowed the knee before him and confessed our sins before Christ and asked him to be the Savior and Lord of our life and depend upon him solely upon his amazing grace will be recorded in that family tree of Jesus. So my question to you today is, have you made your decision for him? Have you trusted him? Have you, have you invited Christ to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to be your Master, to be your King? The Bible says, for as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Do we deserve to be recorded there? No. But how would we get there? Only through his amazing grace. Amen.